Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Tribes have the sovereign right to determine who is a citizen, and that means they can change the enrollment requirements. They can also disenroll members for various reasons. By and large, citizenship is cut and dried. Non-citizen descendancy is a different matter, and individuals take it upon themselves to determine their own connections to tribes, sometimes with little more than family stories to go on. Today we'll hear from tribal leaders about citizenship and what it means to be Native. We're back after the news. National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. First Nations groups and individuals have filed a $1 billion class action lawsuit against the government of Manitoba and the Attorney General of Canada. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the lawsuit is related to the child welfare system in the province. The action was brought by the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, the First Nations Family Advocate Office, three First Nations communities, and three individual plaintiffs. They alleged the child welfare system in Manitoba failed the children, their families, and First Nations. Cora Morgan is the First Nations Family Advocate with the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. You know, the outcomes for our children in care have been um, homelessness, incarceration, mental health issues. Morgan says her office works to reunite families. She says it's been successful at reuniting or preventing the apprehension of more than 4,000 children. But there are many still within the system. The lawsuit covers children living off-reserve who are taken by child and family services and placed into foster care going back to 1992. Of the 11,000 children in care in Manitoba, about 80% are First Nations. Plaintiffs also want an end to the practices and policies that result in First Nations children being removed from their families. Morgan says the province has seen 150 years of what she calls stolen children, and the lawsuit finally gives a voice to those young people and to parents and to First Nations communities. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. The U.S. Census Bureau held a tribal consultation this week in a session at the National Congress of American Indians annual convention taking place in Sacramento, California. The agency is sharing information and planning for the 2030 census. But as Rhonda Lavaldo reports, some say in tribal communities, there's still a lack of trust of the federal government. Counting the Native American population has had problems, and Oglala Lakota citizen Cecilia Firethunder says the U.S. Census still needs help in engaging with tribes individually. We've not done a good job in the past census of really counting all of our people in our community. And so every year we talk about how can we do it differently. And today the same thing. They threw all these PowerPoint stuff up there, but nowhere did it say this community said this, this community said that. Sometimes the people um, don't want to be counted because they said that nobody pays attention to them. So how do we reframe that? Their medicine at the health clinic is dependent on IHS. Their children's education at the tribal school is dependent on the Department of uh, Interior, BIE. How do we create a framework that they can understand why it's important to be counted? The U.S. Census is trying to include more Native voices in the process. Dee Alexander, Tribal Affairs Coordinator, explains. We've got tribal specialists that we hired full-time now that are out, um, boots on the grounds, meeting with tribes, telling them about the upcoming surveys, like ACS is a big thing right now that they're promoting. We're also doing 
travel consultations on the 2020 data that's coming out. So we did that yesterday. So we're constantly in communication with the tribes of what's going on with the census. With a significant increase from 5.2 million to 9.7 million of Native American and Alaskan Natives and the next census eight years away, they are working to make sure every person is counted. This is Rhonda Lovaldo for National Native News. With less than a week before Election Day, Get Out the Native Vote, a nonpartisan effort in Alaska, is hosting an absentee polling station this week in Anchorage, located at the Cook Inlet Tribal Council building. Any registered Alaskan voter can complete their ballot at the location prior to November 8th from 7 to 4.30. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Have an idea to improve your tribal economy? Information at bia.gov DCI, which supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our Tribal Leaders series today with a focus on tribal citizenship. We'll get information on basic enrollment requirements for different tribes and how that may or may not have changed over time. Some tribes are considering new criteria for tribal citizenship. We'll also get perspectives about non-enrolled descendants or about people who claim descendancy. Do tribes have any say about who can or cannot claim descendancy? It's an important topic that impacts issues like who can claim authenticity for artwork produced by Native Americans. It's also a hot topic when people work to influence discussions and research on Native issues, but don't always have the connections to tribes they say they do. How does your tribe determine who can be a citizen? That's one of many questions we're asking today, and we welcome your comments. 1-800-996-2848, the number to call. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first tribal leader on the show today is Kathy Chavers. She's the chairwoman of the Boyce Fort Band of Chippewa Indians and the president of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe. Chairwoman Chavers, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you. Chairwoman, the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe is considering changing its enrollment criteria as we speak. What's prompting the review? Um, what's prompting the review is the, the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe uh, uh, has a constitution which was adopted in June of 1934. And it's a document that uh, wasn't made by Native people. Um, and so right now we're undergoing constitution reform. That's one of the things that's been on the shelf for the um, Minnesota Chippewa tribe uh, for quite some time. So we finally got a system together right now where we have representatives from each of the six bands um, that are getting together to start the constitution reform process. Uh, enrollment has been a, um, 
and being a tribal member within the MCT um, has always been a long-standing issue for our tribal members. And so we did a survey this past year and uh, wondering about what our tribal members are thinking about as far as who should be a member of, of the MCT. And so um, basically we got it back and it was kind of half and half. It was wondering if we get rid of enrollment altogether was one of the questions. And the other question was regarding um, uh, having the bands determine their own because there's six bands under the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. There is Boys Fort, Fond du Lac, uh, Leech Lake, Grand Portage, Mille Lacs, and White Earth. What is the current enrollment criteria for the Minnesota Chippewa tribe and how could that potentially change in the future? Okay, the current criteria, we have an enrollment ordinance and it states that you must be one quarter Minnesota Chippewa tribe blood, uh, which means like, for example, if I had um, uh, a parent that was enrolled in Boys Fort and a parent that was in, uh, my other parent was enrolled in Leech Lake, uh, both blood would be counted as MCT blood. It would be counted as, as whole, um, but that's only within the, the bands themselves. So we do have a quarter um, blood quantum enrollment criteria, but uh, and a parent must be enrolled also. Um, we don't agree with the enrollment period because we never put enrollment on ourselves. That was put on to us by the federal government um, to assimilate us. And so, um, but there was a, a study done by the Wilder Institute in 2014 that uh, gave uh, the next 20 years uh, different scenarios for enrollment and Pretty soon, tribes will be non-existent at some point if we don't address the issue. So the general idea here is probably to lower, either remove the, the blood quantum requirement or, or lower it considerably. Well, right now for Boys Fort and for the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe, we just had a meeting on Friday of our Tribal Executive Committee, which is the six bands, uh, chairs, or presidents and their secretary treasurers. That's our committee that meets. And we have two resolutions that have been approved by the Secretary of the Interior for a secretarial election. And so what we did on Friday is we are moving forward um, because we got the surveys back from some of our tribal members with some type of direction to go forward. And what's been approved by the Secretary of the Interior so far is number one, that we have a secretarial election to add all Chippewa blood, not just uh, MCT blood, but like Red Lake blood, uh, Michigan tribes, Turtle Mountain, um, adding all Chippewa blood. So that's going to be going to a secretarial election. The other resolution that's on hold that's been passed by the Department of Interior for a secretarial election is the addition of Canadian blood to be used for um, enrollment. We haven't done anything with that one yet. Uh, we need to do some, some more research on the Canadian blood uh, standpoint, um, but we are moving forward with the secretarial election uh, regarding adopting all Chippewa blood to um, increase our enrollment right now. So that's, that's the avenue that the Minnesota Chippewa tribe is going. So that would essentially increase the pool of eligible enrollees simply because it would just include so many more tribes outside of the state of Minnesota that are Chippewa. So I'm curious, Chairwoman, if the membership criteria were changed based on these uh, approved and on hold uh, resolutions that, that you're describing, how do you think that would, that would have impact the power and the influence of the tribe? Um, I think, I think it would make, first of all, um, it would make the smaller tribes bigger. Um, 
somehow though, like we're not per capita tribes. Uh, we only have two per capita tribes in the um, in Minnesota's Chippewa tribe. It would impact them if they had increased membership uh, for those per capitas that they're currently issuing. Um, but as far as for Boys Fort, we'll get more members under our under that system. Um, however, what we would need to do then is work uh, with the state and the feds and everybody else to increase our enrollment numbers. Um, so the funding justifies the funding that we get will hopefully justify or help with those additional members that were added. Um, that might take a while to get that done. Any idea about how may, how much, you know, in terms of membership, the number of people that could be potentially on the rolls if some of these changes go through? Oh, yeah. It, it will increase some members' um, blood quantums quite considerably, I'm sure, because right now we don't recognize uh, Red Lake because they're their own sovereign nation and not, not a part of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. So um, we have a lot of um, band members and children that have uh, um, either Red Lake blood in them, Boys Fort blood in them, or whatever. And so um, we can't count that Red Lake blood. So it might make them ineligible for services if they're under that quarter. You know what I mean? If they have mm -hmm. like uh, 316's Boys Fort, but yet they have one quarter or half Red Lake, we can't even count that Red Lake. But if this passes through this secretarial election, then we would be able to do that. So how how much larger potentially could the Minnesota Chippewa tribe be if these changes go through? That's a really good question because right now we have a we have approximately forty thousand members uh, with the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. So that could increase anywhere from. 5,000 to 10,000. It just uh, depends on on the amount of people that have that dual Chippewa blood. Okay, substantially. I mean, as many as 25%. Chairwoman, thank you for, for leading off our, our conversation today. Let's move now to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, where we have Dr. Aaron Payment. He's a former chairman of the Sault Ste. Marie Chippewa Tribe of Indians and the Director of Government Relations to the National Indian Health Board. Aaron, welcome back to NAC. And according to uh, what we're learning about here from uh, Chairwoman Chavers, uh, maybe perhaps uh, your blood quantum from Sault Ste. Marie could apply to the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe of Indians here in the future. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Let me correct, though, I'm uh, no longer with the National Indian Health Board. Uh, my move date to Washington, D.C. was yesterday, and I'm raising two tribal foster children. They're my nephews, and I just could not figure out how to make that work with the move. So uh, I'm no longer with the National Indian Health Board. But um, I, I want to start out with a quote from Dr. Vine Deloria, Jr. Only dogs and Indians have to prove their pedigree. So that's mm -hmm. a really stark, if anybody remembers or if anybody knew Dr. Vine Deloria Jr. in person, uh, he liked to set up with a thought-provoking sort of stark sort of quote. And um, we are the only race that has to prove our blood quantum. If you're black, you're black. If you're uh, Latino or Asian. But those are ethnicities, and we're, we're both – we have an ethnicity as American Indian, Alaska Native, but we're also the citizens of our tribe. And I do respect each tribal government's uh, sovereign right to define their citizenship – but, you know, it's really important to unpack uh, the practice of where uh, blood quantum came in to be or residency came in to be in our constitutions and, and for what purpose uh, that, was, uh, that was introduced to us by the federal government and for what reason. And just to cut right to the chase, 
the Marshall Trilogy was recognizing uh, tribal sovereignty and upholding the Supreme Court was upholding, uh, you know, some semblance of a, a federal treaty and trust obligation to tribes. And so the federal government realized they were on the hook. And so what happened was the Indian boarding schools was intended to assimilate and to make Indian people no longer Indian by whitewashing them, cutting their hair, forcing them to learn English and not speak their own language. Um, also, the reservation uh, movement was created for that purpose. The allotment uh, uh, was created uh, so that you would denounce your lineage and your citizenship. And the Homestead Act was also created so that you could get gifts of land, cultivate that land, and after 20, 20 years, you could renounce citizenship in your tribe and become U.S. citizens, which was a false promise, because as we know, we didn't get citizenship until 1924. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different types of practices. There's residency to become a member of a, a particular tribe. There's blood quantum. That's probably one of the most used ones. There's uh, role closures, open enrollment and role closures. My tribe uh, in particular, we were recognized in 72. Uh, we had open enrollment for 25 years. We've had uh, closed uh, role closure for 25 years. And so it, it really kind of depends on the tribe. But, you know, if we look introspectively, look to our culture and our traditions and ask ourselves, um, you know, how would our ancestors have defined? Um, how would they have prepared for their grandchildren and their great grandchildren uh, to carry on the legacy of their tribe and their culture and their language? And would they have agreed to some kind of artificial mm -hmm. criteria to mm -hmm. define or not? So, Aaron, uh Really, really good points to make here. And we're going to chat with you more after the break. Folks, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Oklahoma is at the center of several significant conflicts between tribes and the state. Those struggles are propelling tribes to back the election opponent of the current governor. The tribes are also working in the courts and the legislature to reverse actions they say are detrimental to sovereignty. We'll take a special look into Oklahoma's relationship with tribes on the next Native America Calling. Early voting has started, but with possible changes in district lines and state election laws, it's more important than ever to know how, when, and where to vote. That's why AARP created state-specific election guides where you can find up-to-date information about how to register, where to vote, the rules for early voting, and key deadlines. You don't have to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking with tribal leaders about enrollment and citizenship. How does your tribe determine who can be enrolled? How do you determine descendancy? Please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Let's go to the phones now. We have one of our regulars listening online in East Texas, Jin. Jin, hello. It's good to have you calling in today. Thank you so much. I have an important question that I was hoping you, you might have somebody there from the Cherokee Nation, um, but I, I have to say that uh, as I have participated a lot with the Cherokee at large from the Cherokee Nation programs, I've learned something that has helped me understand why, you know, my dad's mother never appeared on the rolls 
And not that she necessarily would have wanted to because she'd moved here from Alabama with her English husband. She was, uh, and I, once I found this piece of information out, it kind of solved the problem for me because um, Roy Hamilton presented, he's a Cherokee that was pre- uh, presenting a Cherokee genealogy on their Cherokee Day program. And I found out, and I have this uh, statement that he made in that class, that under state law, if a Cherokee stayed in the East, instead of being removed to the Trail of Tears, they would be considered a person of color, which meant they could not own land. And since my mom's, my, my dad's mom was born in Alabama, uh, and moved to Texas with her English husband, which we've traced him back. And and when when people would ask her what kind of Indian she was, because she was she she looked Indian to everybody, and she would say she'd always say that she was Cherokee. She obviously did not give up her personal. Of, uh, of feelings about being Cherokee. So we grew up knowing her as a Cherokee, yet, you know, when we, of course, when we tried to find her on the rolls, she wasn't, and mm-hmm. not that she necessarily would have been. But this explains at least partly why that might be. And there's a whole county of Cherokee people here close to where I live. There's a battleground where we fought to stay here when we were here. When Texas belonged to Mexico, um, we had a, a clan that came here, established themselves, and they okay. fought the Texas militias. Stay here, and, so it's and, kind of interesting. Okay, and Jen, just real quick, so these this community that that you're a member of there in East Texas, the Cherokee community, these are all folks uh, descendants of, of Cherokees that did not travel on the Trail of Tears but stayed back east. And, uh, well, yes, and when, whenever the militia took over, a lot of them ran to Mexico and came back and then raised their families here. So okay. it's called Cherokee County, and there's just tons of Cherokee who still love to call themselves Cherokee, but will never be able to be enrolled. Okay. Someone. Jen, thanks for that call. And, and Aaron, I want to have you chime in on this. You know, I, I, I hear stories like this quite often of folks that have— uh, you know, they have these these native ancestors, in this case, a, a grandmother, um, and, and who apparently is very much a, of a certain tribe, but for whatever reason, either because of circumstance, because of what state they resided in, whatever, they, they, they can't get that enrollment. And um, what's your thought on that, Aaron? Yeah, so so much of Indian identity is affected by artificial criteria that's not of our own making. Uh, either the assimilation and melting pot, you know, how people were uh, looked down on or treated poorly, but for the color of their skin, or if they were Indian. You know, and we were the last uh, to be granted citizenship in 1924. And before that, there was a general belief in, in American lexicon and history books that we were less than human, that we were not civilized. And so, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people... Um, denied their heritage initially, or they were not allowed to continue their heritage if they were forcibly removed. All those things are outside of who we are as people. And, um, mm-hmm. what, you know, I, I, I'm kind of in a dual position here because I 100% respect 
a tribe's sovereign right to define their citizenship, but also as an American Indian, as an individual, um, you know, in your heart, you know, your culture, your beliefs. Uh, if you were denied those as you were growing up and you're, you're curious and you're hungry for it, that's your ancestors calling you. So, you know, I have uh, mixed feelings about it. Um, I, I also will say that I have the greatest respect for uh, Chief Hoskins and the Cherokee Nation for healing that they're doing through the Freeman case and, um, you know, and, and how they're trying to reach out and try to rectify as a matter of social justice some okay. of the past practice. So I really appreciate that. Aaron, how do how does your tribe, the Sault Ste. Marie uh, Bandit Sherpa, how do you folks deal with descendancy? Yeah, so I think it's kind of, it's really funny because when I think about uh, Vindaloya, so I'm half Indian, right? My, my mother's full blood. My father was white. He was in the Air Force. So I'm twice as Indian as the quarter bloods. Think about how stupid that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> That's just absolutely ridiculous. And then my mother would be twice as Indian as me, although she probably was because that was her culture. But um, we are uh, lineal descent, and I can remember I'm old enough. I was uh, 10 years old. No, I was seven years old when our, our, our members voted on our Constitution. And the question of blood quantum was put forward. And our, our elders, our grandparents said, why would we vote on something that would deny our grandchildren access to services or the benefits of being a member of this tribe? Why would we cut our own grandchildren out of the deal? And they voted against the blood quantum in my tribe because they, they were providing for future generations. Aaron, this trend that we're seeing of, uh, of tribes changing enrollment criteria, in many cases doing away with blood quantum or, or lowering blood quantum, other criteria, What's driving this? What What is motivating or influencing so many tribes to reconsider these longstanding issues of enrollment? I would probably say there's probably many different reasons. There could be political reasons. There could be, uh, you know, seeking per capita. There could be a number of reasons. But I would say probably the, the most one that I've seen in terms of changing the criteria but or also just opening the roles is as we move forward and after the American Indian Movement and pride in our culture and our identity and our language, people want to belong. They, they want to see their great-great-grandparents as something not in the, in the distant past, but as people that they know, and they're trying to embrace their culture and their identity, and that's something that should be celebrated. People want to belong. Absolutely. Aaron Payment, thank you. Let's go back to the phones. We have Mark listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico on KUNM. Mark, hello. Hi. Hi, Mark. What's on Can your you mind? Absolutely. Yeah. What's um, on your mind? A Trojan horse warfare. Mm. So I have a grandfather, a great-grandfather on the Friedman Rolls, um, on the Choctaw Friedman Rolls. And I basically constructed what is called the Maroon identity. That Maroon is the Taino word for a first-generation African native mix. It means wild and free. And traditionally, Maroons go on plantations, free slaves by force, and Massa better not get in the way. So, and they construct free societies. So there are at least four weapons, Trojan, basically weapons disguised as gifts. The bottle, the Bible, the casino, and blood quantum. So just like the brother you know, who quoted Vine Deloria said, white people do not use 
blood quantum to define themselves. But they use those weapons to redefine for people of color. So first it was black people, then it was natives, then it's Hawaiians. But white people don't use that weapon. So you should be suspect. So when I adopt a maroon identity, I'm following in the cultural heritage of Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. Malcolm X. You know, I'm an urban Indian because I'm from L.A., right? Okay. And so L.A. was one of the largest collections of urban Indians, even outside of Navajo. Okay, right? Mark, I, so, I, yeah, thanks for calling in, Mark, and uh, those, those comments there, uh, the bottle, the Bible— Casinos and blood quantum. It's a really interesting perspective and appreciate you calling in and sharing that with regard to these issues of enrollment and tribal citizenship. And anybody else that wants to call in, please, our number, 1-800-996-2848. We would really like to hear from our listeners today chiming in on these important discussions that we're having today with various tribal leaders from throughout Native America. Um, We've spoken with Kathy Chavers, Chairwoman Chavers from the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe. We've spoken with Dr. Aaron Payment, uh, former chairman of the Sault Ste. Marie Chippewa Tribes. And now let's head up to Anchorage, Alaska, where we have Nathan McCowan on the line. He's the president and CEO of St. George Tuna Corporation. He's Tlingit and Aleut. Nathan, welcome back to Native America Calling. Cool. Uh, for having me. Nathan, this whole discussion, Native identity and membership that we're talking about, it's very different among Alaska Natives compared to tribes in the contiguous United States. And and I know that the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, ANCSA, that's one reason why that is. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about ANCSA and, and how the law changed what it means in Alaska to be part of a village, a tribe, or a regional for profit corporation? Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. The, the discussion's been fascinating, and you know, thematically, there's a lot of elements that are very similar to the descriptions of the Minnesota Chippewa and Sault Ste. Marie and other other tribes, even if the institutions that are uh, at the core of what Alaska Native uh, natives um, encounter every day. Um, we we had a very different. Uh, set of circumstances vis-a-vis the uh, first the Russian and then the America, uh, United States of American um, colonial occupation of our traditional homelands. Um, we, we encountered the United States um, after uh, the treaty-making era was over. Um, and so our, our unique history uh, created these, these um, um, simultaneous set of institutions that are, that are uh, vitally important in, in, in unique ways and, and differentiate our, our own self-determination, our paradigm of self-determination from the rest of the country. Um, so there's, there's really three, three main institutions that compose um, how groups of Alaska Natives define themselves. Um, you, you know, first, uh, what we call the, the Listac tribes. Uh, there are 229 tribes that are on the, the List Act uh, of 1994 um, that are sometimes called federally recognized tribes. Um, then you have the uh, village corporations and then the regional corporations that were a part of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. Um, when you uh, are born, um, you have the opportunity to uh, 
perhaps enroll in one of the Listac tribes. Um, but uh, each of those tribes have, uh, as what one could expect, a, a differential set of criteria. Uh, some have uh, blood quantum, some have lineal descent, some of them have residency requirements, um, some do not. And then uh, depending upon which village uh, your ancestry is from, which region your ancestry is from, you may or may not be able to enroll currently in the regional corporation or, or the village corporation. You may have to wait for an inheritance of shares um, or a gifting of shares from one of your relatives in order to um, then become a part of the corporation. This all sounds very, very complex. And Nathan, I, I, I know that you are, you are enrolled in, in, in one tribe, you are enrolled Tlingit, but then you are a shareholder of the St. George Tuna Corporation. And just, can you explain to our listeners kind of like, what is that like on a daily basis in terms of how you, if you, if you, if you seek services or uh, there's any need that you have specific to, to being a native person, how do you kind of balance those two, um, those two roles, being a tribal enrolled Tlingit person and then a shareholder in an ANC? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I apologize for all the listeners out there, but it, it, it's a bit like letting your kids finger paint with mashed potatoes and that it gets pretty <laughs> messy pretty fast. Um, so my, my, my grandmother was Clinkett, um, and my grandfather was Aleut. Um, and when ANCSA happened in 1971, they, they made a decision about um, um, enrollments. And so the kids, my, my mom and her siblings, were, were uh, enrolled in, in uh, my grandfather's region for the purposes of ANGSA, but my grandmother's region for the purposes of, of, of the federally recognized tribal, uh, List Act tribal enrollment. Um, what, I, I don't think of it necessarily in terms of, of what do I get out of it. I think of it more in terms of what are my duties and responsibilities. Um, my role as, as the CEO of, of my village corporation is that I have a primary responsibility to care for and help um, benefit uh, my grandfather's people, including um, the village of St. George, which is in the, the middle of the Bering Sea. Um, there's many economic needs that, that, the, that the village has, um, but there's also many needs that the, the folks on the, uh, who are off the island have in terms of education, elders' assistance, um, access to various programs, and, and so that's what I do on, on my day job. Um, when it comes to um, my federally recognized tribe, my, my Listac tribe, um, it's much more of, of, a, of an association. Um, I, don't, I don't typically access the programs and services that they, they offer because they're, they're usually reserved to people that live um, inside the region of Southeast Alaska. Um, Alaska is, is a little bit different than most of the other portions of the country because um, there was a recognition that, that, that the Alaska Natives were moving into um, population centers like Anchorage, like Fairbanks. Um, and so the regional, tri the regional corporation in that area and the village corporations in some of the outlying areas um, have been made eligible for many programs and services that the List Act tribes have. And so. Oftentimes, I will go in and get health care at the Alaska Native Medical Center, the Alaska Native Tribal Health uh, Consortium, um, and that health care is actually being provided to me via monies coming through IHS uh, that are filtered into a regional corporation of which I'm not a member. 
So the, the, the Alaska situation, um, like I said, a bit like mashed potatoes, gets, gets very, very messy very quickly. On, on a day-to-day basis, um, it's much more about what can we give to each other, what can we deliver for each other, than what it is about what we can get. Folks, we're having a really interesting conversation today, speaking now with Nathan McGowan. He's president and CEO of St. George Tunnel Corporation. He's up in Anchorage, Alaska. We've got other tribal leaders on the show as well, talking about this issue of tribal citizenship, enrollment, and and many tribes taking steps to reconsider or perhaps change their enrollment criteria. And for a number of reasons, uh, we're talking about all of those topics today. So please give us a call. We've had two callers already, and we'd love to hear from some more folks, some of our listeners, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. What are you waiting for? Let's get some more calls going. We're back right after another short break. This Native American Heritage Month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with tribal leaders about citizenship. Has your tribe changed enrollment requirements or criteria in recent years? It's an increasing trend. Call us 1-800-996-2848 to share your thoughts, to ask any questions. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we're speaking still with Nathan McGowan. He's up in Alaska. He's president and CEO of St. George Tunnock Corporation. Nathan, uh, we've been talking with some other tribal leaders uh, about uh, changing criteria for tribal enrollment. And I'm curious to know, uh, do, do you see that there in Alaska as a trend as well? Either tribes like that you mentioned, some of these List Act tribes that are changing or interested in changing for cr- criteria for tribal enrollment, or perhaps some of the Alaska Native corporations that are that are uh, have plans or are reviewing ideas for, for changing criteria for shareholder membership. Um, I see it much less amongst the the tribes, um, and the the predominant reason why is that there's there's just not a lot of outcry that comes from citizens about um, benefits and services that happen because of uh, enrollment or lack thereof. Because we have this overlapping system where we have eligibility for certain programs and services if you're a shareholder or if you're a tribal member. Some of the aspects of tribal enrollment that might create those types of dilemmas don't ever appear. You know, for instance, many tribes in Alaska have a residency requirement if you're not already a tribal member in order to ob- obtain membership. Uh, but if you're a shareholder and you're living in Anchorage or Fairbanks or where have you, um, you still are able to access most of the services that you would access if you were also a member of a Listac tribe. So. The, the tribal side, we don't see it altogether that much. That isn't to say that it won't change in the future. More of the discussions happen in and around the corporations. Um, the corporations, when enrollment happened in the 70s, required people to be one quarter blood quantum or more in order to be eligible. 
there was also a provision that said if you couldn't provide sufficient proof of one quarter blood quantum, if your native village considered you to be native, then you were able to enroll. That that blood quantum issue is one that, that is a very live and active struggle up here. Um, what, there's, uh, there, was, there was not an enrollment mechanism originally based in ANCSA after the initial enrollment. So if you were born after 1971, uh, there was no way for you to become a shareholder unless you inherited shares. Um, that changed with amendments in 1991 that then allowed each individual uh, community to decide for itself whether and then how it wanted to enroll folks born after 1971. A few of the first out of the gate kept the one quarter blood quantum, but as time has gone by, others have begun re-examining that and trying to make that uh, correlate and, and be cohesive with uh, their traditional ways of defining uh, identity and defining uh, um, whether people were a part of the community. And so what we're beginning to see is corporations that had uh, had original enrollment of descendants set at a quarter now coming back and revisiting it and uh, deciding to 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 push it down to to lineal descent in some cases, um, but you know it, it, we still have a situation where not even all of the regional corporations, much less the whole variety of villages, have even really grappled with and struggled with the notion of of how to enroll. Most most of them rely on the mechanisms of inheritance or gifting in order for people born after 1971 to find that identity, to find that sense of belonging within their, within their institutions. So uh, the inherited um, shares, that's, that's really interesting thing. So can you kind of explain like how that would work then? So perhaps a, a grandparent or a parent who's a shareholder would pass away. And then what if there's multiple descent, can they will those shares or are they, how are those actually distributed upon somebody's passing? It's it sound it's again it's going to sound foreign to many people's ears because the system is a foreign one. Um, the, the 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 notion of creating corporations happened because the state of Alaska or the federal government wanted uh, the sovereign governments up here to have the land, and so as part of the negotiation of our land claims, the the basic, the only way we could get it done was to create these brand new entities called corporations. And these entities then would distribute a certain number of shares, 100, to each one of the eligible enrollees in the 70s. After that point in time, those shares are treated like an inheritable asset, like any other inheritable asset would be, um, like a car would be, like a bicycle would be, like a, you know, uh, um, mm -hmm. uh, instrument would be. And so an individual shareholder can decide through a will or through some other um, document with legal power to then bind the corporation to following through with their decisions about how they want their shares to be inherited. So maybe they have five children and they want each one of those children to inherit 20 shares. Maybe they have, you know, 10 grandchildren and they each want them to have 10 shares. Maybe they want to mix and match. Um, maybe they feel that, you know, certain children have already been taken care of by other relatives, and so they want to focus on other children. Uh, so it, it, it allows each individual uh, shareholder the decision-making power to decide 
for them and their families how they want to uh, structure the, 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 the shares and, and to structure the, the, the membership and, and identity. Nathan, thank you for joining us today and providing all those insights uh, on how these issues impact Native peoples there in Alaska. Really fascinating to, to learn about just how different it is there in Alaska with regard to some of these Alaska Native corporations as well as, as tribal entities. So folks, give us a call 1-800-996-2848. There's still time to join this discussion. Let's move on now to Anor, South Carolina, where we have Harold Buster Hatcher. He is the chief of the Waccamaw Indian people. Chief Hatcher, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak here. I'm among very uh, distinguished people, it sounds like. <laughs> well, I, I sure do appreciate you giving that shout out to all of our other guests, Chief. And uh, let's talk now about your people, the Waccamaw tribe. You folks are state recognized. How does your tribe determine who is a citizen? Well, you know, I'll I had thought about uh, the blood quantum, too, but I think the blood quantum actually will make you extinct. If not right away, then eventually that's what's going to happen. But back in 1813, well, even prior to that, uh, people that all around this area in South Carolina, Native people lived. And they didn't own land because they didn't have titles and deeds. Well, that land was given away to other people. And they even authorized the new owners to use deadly force if necessary to move the people off their newly acquired land. At any rate, somewhere around 1813, uh, my great-great-grandfather and some others pooled their money, and they bought 200 acres of land in the Dog Bluff, Dog Bluff or Ainer area of South Carolina. And most of the Indian people for several reasons, migrated to that property. Uh, they had their own school, their own church, their you know, everything. Um, but uh, and, and to become a, to to join the actual Waccamaw tribe, which is now a, a state recognized tribe, you have to show a kinship to those folks that live on that that uh, settlement. It was called a Demery settlement. It's well. Well documented and, uh, and on the on the internet, if somebody wanted to go and look. But uh, if you show a, a tie to a direct line tie to anyone that lived on that settlement or inhabited that settlement settlement right after 1813, then you're eligible for membership in the tribe. Now, as somebody else said, I don't recall the name, but somebody else said that uh, only dogs and Indians have to have pedigree. But it goes goes deeper than that. Um, because not only do you have to have pedigree, you got to be recognized. I retired from the Army in 1988, and I bought a company. Now, I, I grew up in South Carolina, and South Carolina never officially had an Indian in it until 1994 when the Catawba were returned their recognition because of a land lawsuit. There were no federal tribes in South Carolina. So after 1994, you know, I, I grew up, and I, I went to white schools. And I uh, lived in black neighborhoods because we kind of didn't fit anywhere. Mm. But well, well, how, how yeah, I'm curious, how, how large, how, what size, what is the enrollment now? How many folks are, are enrolled there with the Waccamaw people there in South Carolina? How big is your I, tribe? I have to answer that two ways. Uh, my mother was born in 1913. The Indian Citizenship Act, that somebody else mentioned earlier, is 1924. So up until the time that these, uh, that, 
she was a teenager when the Indian Citizenship Act passed. Prior to that, they couldn't own land. They couldn't uh, vote. They couldn't do a lot of things. And even today, you know, people that, that know people like my mother, that, that grew up with people like my mother, they think if they become a tribal member, they'll lose their Social Security. It's not true, but that's what they think. And so they, so they, try, uh, they try to pass themselves off for white or black, you know, whatever. Uh, but so to answer the question, I have to say it two ways. We have about 245 actual card-carrying members. But there's probably another 1,000 or 1,500 that are eligible for membership that chose not to be because they're afraid of the government. They're afraid of, of what rights they might lose. And, and the tribe has really nothing to offer them at, with the state recognition. I know everybody probably out there listening has heard of Public Law 101644, uh, which is a truth in advertisement thing. It says that uh, you have to be a member of a recognized tribe to even call your art native art if you plan on selling it. So we're, re- we're re- regulated by omission, if you know what I'm saying. If you don't have an ID card in your pocket that says you're recognized, then even if you did art like it was done 900 years ago, you can't call it Native American art. Right, uh, my, right. my sister does does okay. uh, pottery like it was done hundreds of years ago. She, but she, up until the time we got recognized, which was in 2005, she couldn't, also, she couldn't call it Native American. Mm-hmm. The only people in the country that have that kind of sort of stuff to deal with if, Chief, if you go back to my business, for example, the Indian okay. people in South Carolina earn approximately 27% less than, than Caucasian people in the same job with the same education level. Our dropout rate is five times that of the Caucasians. Now, okay. and not all, but our people live at, at or below the poverty level at five times the rate of the Caucasians. Okay. Now, Chief, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry. I do want to take it. We have one more call that we want to get to, but I really appreciate all these comments. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that uh, folks who are actually eligible to be members of the Waccamaw tribe choose not to simply because of these misinformations regarding or mis- pieces of inf- misinformation regarding uh, Social Security and some of these other factors. So really, really interesting discussion. Let's go to the phones now. Joining us from Poplar, Montana is Pat Ironcloud. Grandma Pat, she's known as. She's uh, listening online. She's a councilwoman for the Fort Peck tribes. Grandma Pat, hello. Hey, good afternoon. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Grandma Pat. Now, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think about uh, these issues we're talking about so far? Tribes changing enrollment criteria to either welcome more members or perhaps exclude members. What's your thought? Well, look, we're going to be bringing that up to our council, and because a lot of the people, when we gave that ARPA funds out, we gave each of our members $800 uh, three or four different times this year, and some of them missed that payment just by .001, you know, to be a quarter member of our tribe. We have 14,000 approximate members. We have 5 million acres, and there are 12 council people. And we all represent all the different areas, which is seven of them. So I think if the people, for myself, and it's only my own personal opinion because we have to put it on the docket so that they can vote for it this this coming fall of 2023, October. And then when they do that, they can vote if they want to open it up so that we can go down even further, either lineal descendancy or go to like an eighth or more. 
to be fully recognized because the eight or more are associate members in our tribe, and they can get health care, but they can't get education, they can't get housing, they can't get anything else. But if you're a quarter or more, you're entitled to all of that. And like the gentleman said earlier about the um, Social Security, I'm a full member of this tribe. I get Social Security. I work um, seven days out of a week because we're elected officials. We work 24-7. So those are the things. We won't lose any of that. And I think the people in the Carolinas, they don't understand that. So I know that predicament that that gentleman's talking about, that chief of that tribe, because it's a terrible thing, you know, for our people to want to be a member of the tribe. And then the United States government said, well, we're going to give you only a quarter. You're a quarter or less, and you're not Indians no more. I don't believe that one of the great sitting bull chiefs of our tribe, he wanted and he prayed for all the ancestries that are before him, all the posterity after him. He didn't care what they looked like. He didn't care if they were... Black hair, blonde hair, blue eyes, dark eyes, those are his takoja, those are his grandchildren, and they have a right to own this land still. That's all we're going to have left in the end, either that or be exterminated totally as far as blood degree off of the land of the United States. Grandma Pat, you mentioned 14,000 enrolled members currently with Fort Peck. If, if some of these changes go through, how much larger do you think the enrollment could be there? Well, right now we have associate members 3,000, so it could go up to 17,000. But even those people, half of our people are living off of the reservation. They live in the big cities, all the way from New York, all the way to California, to Alaska, to Hawaii, and things. So those people there, you know, they have, a lot of them are educated that they leave there, they don't come back, you know. And But we still get the benefits, a lot of the benefits we send out. They get the per capita payments every year. But we want them to come back, come back and visit, come back and stay, if you will. You know, uh, there's eights and above. They're called associates. They're never going to be recognized unless our people recognize themselves via the voting. They have to vote in order to accept them or reject them. We're going to have to wrap up the show now. I do want to thank all of our guests today, Chairwoman Kathy Chavers, Nathan McCowan, Dr. Aaron Payment, Chief Harold Hatcher, and Councilwoman Pat Ironcloud. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about politics in Oklahoma. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. La Kovachozani Otelia, Lil Mas Apkayo, 1 800 318 2596. Lil Yayo, www.healthcare.gov/scp-list, slash hashtag domestic abuse. Now, word chunk, ill oich, iguapo. Lil Wotchaniki, Medicare, and Medicaid, Otitahia, Pelo. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day, on December 3rd, participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.